Join me in Philippians chapter 4, if you would. We are close, so close to finishing our series, The Mind of Christ. Oh, that we would be like Jesus, who obeyed the Father at great personal cost to himself, who humbled himself, leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth, to be abused and mistreated, to be rejected by his own, to be rejected by his creation who emptied himself giving up all the the rights and luxuries and privileges that he had he didn't stop being god don't ever get that mistake he was still always 100% god i remember one time studying the passage where uh, jesus is calling his disciples and he tells One of them, I think it was Nathaniel, this isn't in the notes, so I'm probably going to make a mistake. I think it was Nathaniel, and he says, uh, follow me, and uh, Nathaniel kind of hesitates, and he says, "Uh, earlier today, I saw you when you were sitting under the tree. And what did he do? He he gets up and follows him, and he says, don't worry, you're going to see way more amazing things than that. I remember studying that going, wait, why was that special? Well, because... Nathaniel knew that nobody saw him. Only God knew what was going on, and Jesus is God, and he demonstrated that in that moment for that one disciple that was hesitant. He did not stop being God, but he took on the form of man. I love the way Scripture talks about it being clothed in the likeness of men. As we put on clothes, and that changes our appearance. Jesus veiled himself, clothed himself with humanity, being fully God and fully man. Then humbled himself, dying a sinner's death, a criminal's death for us. If we would have even a fraction of the mind of Christ, his attitudes, his ways of making decisions, it would transform our lives. And that's been the purpose of this letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 4. We're going to read verse 20. And I did consider keeping verse 20 with verse 19, last week's verse, or lumping it together with the next couple verses. But the reality is, we could spend months on the concepts in verse 20. We really could. We're not going to. But there are countless books written about what it means that God is Father. Right? There are countless books written on what it means to be glory-giving. That's what verse says to God 
be the glory. So we're not going to try to cram countless books into one. I haven't started the timer. So one 35-minute message whenever I start to start the timer. Uh, but we are going to give this verse its due without lumping it together with others. Today's verse is a doxology. We sang the doxology quite fittingly. Uh, there are many doxologies found in Scripture. Many of them are put to song, like the one we sang. Uh, that word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means to speak or to know. Uh, to speak the glory of God is what a doxology is. The, the logos, the logi at the end is word. So uh, of the doxologies found in Scripture, of the doxologies found in the New Testament, this one is actually pretty short. Hence the thought of maybe we just take it with other verses, but we're not going to. We're going to examine the doxology that is Philippians 4.20. So I ask you to follow along as I read our text for this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God, I pray that you would take these brief but packed words and expand them in our hearts and minds this morning and continue to grow them as we meditate on these concepts throughout the week that we too might bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would like to have a big idea for your notes today, just write out the verse. There is no more concise way more simple way to understand this verse or record it than to just say it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a rewind back to chapter 1, verse 2. The very next verse, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So from the very beginning of the book, Paul started talking about God, and he used the phrase, our Father, in verse 2 of chapter 1. And then in verse 3, he says, my God. And now in chapter 4, he reverses the order. He says in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your need, Right? according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And in verse 20, now he says, to our God be glory forever. To our God. Paul could have easily written the entire epistle without ever using a possessive word in talking about God. He could have written verse 19 saying, and God will supply all your need, right? And he could have, in verse 20, said, To God be glory. To God the Father be glory. He chose to make these possessive terms. And by pointing you back to chapter 1 and recognizing the pattern, how he said, My God in verse 3, or our God in verse 2, and my God in verse 3, and now in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 4, he reverses it. He is showing his point makingness I know that was terrible he is showing his intentionality 
he's showing that God is not just the God. He is our God. He is a personable God. He is not an impersonal force that ambiguously works behind the scenes of the universe. God did not just start everything up and then stand back and let everything happen, let everything fall apart. He is active in his creation. He is active with his people. He is our God. Paul writing to young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. He has another doxology. Uh, Paul has several doxologies. Some of them are found at the end of the, the books like we are finding in Philippians. Sometimes they're in the middle. Sometimes they're way early in the beginning. This one is 1 Timothy 6, 15, speaking of God. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is our God. Sovereign. Able to do everything and anything he chooses and desires to do. Having authority over all things. Nothing happens outside of his control. Who dwells in unapproachable light. This God who is transcendent above all we could even hope to imagine. This God who is infinite in time and space. This is the same God who knows you personally. He doesn't just know about you. He knows you. Can we say the same thing about him? Now, in the fullest extent, no, never. Not going to be able to. We can never know God as thoroughly as he knows us. But are we stuck with just knowing about God or do we actually know God? This transcendent, eternal God knows us. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that has happened to you. He knows your actions and history. He knows your thoughts and attitudes while you were doing those actions. So even if you were doing something good, you may have had the wrong heart or maybe whatever. He knows every tiny detail about you. He knows your innermost struggles and insecurities. He knows your pride. He knows how you obey him. He knows how you stubbornly disobey him. And he loves you. He cares for you. This is our God. To our God, the verse continues, to our God and Father, the Old Testament speaks of God as the father of the nation of Israel. And Israel, in turn, was referred to as God's son. 
But the thought of referring to God the Father himself as God my Father or God our Father, that was completely foreign to the Old Testament mind. In fact, the Jews in Jesus' day would not even dare to speak of God as their Father in this personal sense, but would continue this ancient idea from Scripture that he is the Father rather than my father or our father. So when Jesus came on the scene and starts referring to God as my father, they saw that as blasphemous. And they wanted to kill him for it. It ultimately led to his crucifixion. But Jesus went further than that. He didn't just refer to God as his father. He taught his disciples to do the same. When he taught them to pray, what did he say? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Paul is making a theological statement here by stating, to our God and Father. Jesus in John chapter 16 Speaking to his followers in verse 27 says this, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The Father himself loves you. You see the closeness of God to us. And it's the cross that makes all the difference. In that verse, John 16, 27, he says, The the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and to believe that I came from God. That's his shorthand for saying, you believe who I am in its fullest sense. Believing who Jesus is, that he is God the Son sent to earth to die for our sins. That's what gives us that relationship with God the Father. God loves us because we are his own through the cross. It's the cross that makes all the difference. It's through Jesus that we relate to God as his very own children. We call this the doctrine of adoption. This doctrine of adoption into God's family is such a lovely, lovely teaching. First of all, it's true. Second of all, because of what it means. It means that we become co-heirs of God with Jesus. We do not become these children of God by willing it ourselves. And I mean, how many children have at some point or another wished that they could be adopted out of their family into another? I may have a few times wanted that. Sorry, Mom and Dad. But adoption doesn't work like that, does it? We don't get adopted into a family simply by willing it, by wanting it, by desiring it. We get adopted into another family because that other family chooses to adopt you. God chooses to adopt us and make us his children. So he is father, not just because he's the author of all creation. He's father because he chooses to adopt us as his own children. Just like in human adoption, God's adoption involves effort and input on his part, great expense at his, on his part. If an adult were to just take a child, what would we call that? We'd call that kidnapping. 
Don't do that. But when the proper steps are taken, when the proper paperwork is filed, the expenses are paid. When the finalizing official declares, which is a judge in a courtroom setting, declares that this child is now legally the child of the adoptive parents, then there is no longer kidnapping. Now it is the family unit. The full force of the government would stand behind these new parents should anyone try to take them. That is human adoption, and that is the same as God's adoption. There is no undoing it. When God adopts us, it's the full force of heaven that stands behind us when Satan tries to reclaim us. Can't happen. We belong to God. He is our Father. To our God and Father be glory. That word glory is a fascinating subject. Uh, the reality is we generally use that word only in relationship to our God, to our triune God, uh, or to heaven. Now, Scripture does use the word glory in some other uh, manners here and there, but primarily the use is in relationship to God or, into, or to heaven, saying we're going to glory, that type of thing. Uh, prior to the writing of the New Testament, uh, Greek texts that we have found, that we, that we know, have translated this word um, doxa, that, that is translated in the New Testament as glory, uh, simply as a word to mean good reputation. The church took the word doxa, and used it, claimed it as its own, primarily as a word to replace the Old Testament word for glory, uh, understood as praise or, or splendor or brilliance or honor, all these things that talk about our God. That Old Testament equivalent in the Hebrew language means weight, as in weighty, as in heavy, as in not lighthearted. That's what the glory of God is. It's a weighty substance of who he is. How does God receive glory? Well, Scripture tells us that creation gives glory to God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. This morning, the heavens declared the glory of God by being bright and sunny and loud thunder at the same time. I'm not sure if thunder sun is a technical weather term, but that's what we had this morning for a little bit. All of creation, the events of weather, the coming of spring, the greening of the grass, the blooming of the flowers, those wonderfully beautiful trees that give me great headaches but are so nice to look at, all display the glory of God. God's glory is revealed in his creation and in his actions. Psalm 72, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Go throughout scripture. You see over and over again how God is given glory for delivering his people. Lord willing, we will study the Exodus next. And the glory that God receives by bringing his people out of slavery. A picture of what he does for us through the cross of Jesus, delivering us out of the slavery of sin into a new life. 
So God is glorious. All creation screams it. All creation demonstrates it. All of his actions show it. So the question is, how do we give glory to God? How do we give glory, splendor, brilliance, or weightiness to the God who is already all these things? How can we do that? I mean, isn't that what today's text is saying? To our God and Father be glory. How do we do this? How do we make the eternally glorious one glorious? In the Old Testament, God's glory was manifested or was visibly shown to his people, the Israelites, by fire and smoke. I'm going to allude to Exodus because, again, I'm studying it. When they built the tabernacle and it was dedicated, it was consecrated to the Lord's use, what happened? The pillar of cloud came down over it. During the day, it was visible as a cloud, and at night, it was visible as fire. There was always the visible manifestation of God over the tabernacle. The Hebrew, the Hebrew people referred to these manifestations or these appearances of God in the form of light or fire, or smoke, as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory. Unfortunately, you're not going to find the word Shekinah in most English translations of the Bible. It's not found in the Bible, but that's how the Jewish people referred to it. Shekinah means the dwelling. So the Shekinah glory is the dwelling glory of God. So when the tabernacle, that movable tent of worship, uh, was complete. The glory of God rested on it, and then the Shekinah glory dwelt within the holiest place, that cubicle room surrounded by curtains that no one could go into save for the high priest once per year. That's where God made his dwelling. That's the unapproachable light that Paul phrased to Timothy in the verse we already read. God's glory, this unapproachable light, is so intense and holy it would kill a man so the glory had to be concealed. It had to be covered and shielded. God is glorious. So I ask again, how do we make the eternal glorious one more glorious? I'm not sure that we make him more glorious. To give glory to God is not somehow to add to his gloriousness but to make his glory more known. The modern era has brought with it amazing technological marvels. The Hubble telescope, which is now kind of an old beast, and the James Webb telescope have shown us things that humans could barely even imagine, much less describe. Vast nebulae, or nebulas, depending on if you want to say it right or not. Incredibly enormous galaxies. I read that just in the last couple months, the James Webb Telescope has discovered enormous galaxies that had been unknown before. And we see these pictures. If you haven't seen any of them, just Google it. 
and you'll see amazing sights, and you can sit there and marvel at them. And, and for centuries, for thousands of years, for as long as mankind has been on the earth, ever since Adam, those things have existed, and nobody has stood in awe of them except God himself because none of us had seen them, right? They were there. God didn't just, oh, they've got another telescope. I better build a new galaxy. No, they were there, but we couldn't marvel over them because we didn't see them. To bring glory to God is to honor and praise him and cause others to see as well. For us to recognize the glory that he has, proclaim it to him, proclaim it to others so that they too will glory in what they now see. In wrapping up this letter to the Philippians, Paul closes by pointing our hearts and minds to God so that we may see and savor him for who he really is. I had a delightful time studying this topic this week. Going through, I mean, it's not countless because there are only so many verses in Scripture, but I lost count of them. How many verses I looked at about the glory of God. But I want to give you some. I want to share with you some. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The contrast is, well, the other gods aren't doing any of those things. Psalm 97. Read just the first few verses of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Cloud and, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. It's really a shame that we're limited in vocabulary to speak of the glory of God. Perhaps that's why we have eternity to do it. To over and over and over again, without ever getting bored with it, bring glory to God. Which brings us to the next phrase. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. The eternality of God has been, it is clear throughout Scripture that He has always been and will always be. The eternality is prophesied of the Lord Jesus as well as of God the Son in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So centuries before Jesus uh, took on flesh and was born, these words were written of Him. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The verse ends with this. The zeal of the Lord will do this. There are lots of things that I would like to have done at my house. Things that I'm the one that's supposed to do them but I'm so limited in capacity and time and, frankly, energy. When it comes to the eternality of God the Son, God the Father says, I am not going to let this one pass. The zeal of the Lord will make it happen. The eternality of God the Son was prophesied in the past. It was exclaimed by Paul to Timothy early in his first letter. I quoted a bit earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 6. In chapter 1 of that same letter, 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, uh, Paul, has, Paul has shared already in the chapter about his, um, his transformation of, from being a blasphemer of God to becoming an evangelist for Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's prophesied in the Old Testament, exclaimed in the New Testament, and even the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy of Revelation, we read of the blessing and glory of God forever and ever. Revelation chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Our God is eternally glorious. And forever he will be glorified. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Verse 20 of Philippians 4 ends with Amen. Literally meaning indeed it is so. Used as an exclamation to just kind of punch what has already been said. So how how do we give glory, splendor, brilliance, worth to the God who is already full of all of these things? How do we do it? It's with words. I mean, that's what the verse is. It's words. And we can use those words, but it must be more than simply saying to our God be glory. That's a good start. 
but it must be more. How do we give glory to the God who is all glorious? Well, we do it when we act like Jesus. We do it any time we are acting in obedience to God's word. We glorify him in a special way when we gather together as believers, which today has been a, a special day as it is the Lord's day, as it is the time where we are called to gather together as God's people. We glorify God when the word of God is preached. We glorify God together when we sing from a heart devoted to God. Okay? Now, all these are heart actions. You may be sitting here while I'm preaching and you may not be giving glory to God. I don't know. Can't see your heart. You may have sung the songs or, or maybe not sung the songs while the songs were being sung and your heart was not glorifying God. But these are actions, these are parts of, of our worship service that we do that bring glory to God. So we glorify Him together. Our challenge today is to examine our own habits of life. How am I bringing glory to God? Does how you use your time, does how you use your phone show evidence of glorifying God? Or does your time reveal something else? Do the words you speak and the way in which you speak them reveal habits of glorifying God. Does how you relate to one another demonstrate a heart that glorifies God? These are all questions for you to just simply ask yourself, to examine yourself. How am I bringing glory to God. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you alone are worthy of every moment that we have. You are worthy of every bit of energy and effort, every strength that we can muster. You are worthy of all that we can give and infinitely more. And yet somehow, despite the weakness of our glory giving, your word tells us that you are pleased with us. not because we managed to do a little better than yesterday, and not because uh, we gave of a certain amount of time or effort, but because we are found in Him, in our Savior, who tells us that, uh, that our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. And we come to him in faith, turning from our sin and turning toward Christ. You make us a new creature. So Father, we ask that you'd help us to live like it. 
Because until we see you face to face, we won't fully live like it. Help us to live like new creatures, like ones who are bought with a price. Father, help us to, to examine ourselves, to look at how we use this very precious, this momentary vapor of a life that you've given us. Help us to examine how we use this life. Are we giving you glory? Or are we pursuing idolatrous pursuits? Father, change us. Work in us. Develop in us a passion and zeal to live for you that in doing so, you might be more glorified. And we might uh, spread that word of glory to others around us and other believers will join in glorifying you and will spread that good news to the lost around us so that they might believe and glorify you too and in that way your glory be compounded. Lord, may everything that we say, do, and think bring honor and glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray.